Welcome to The Road Back to You. Looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram, I'm Suzanne Stabile. And I'm Ian Cron. And we're so glad that you're listening today. Welcome to The Road Back to You. How are you doing on this rainy day? Suzanne, I am particularly good today because two of the first people I met when we moved to Nashville eight years ago are sitting next to me. And we don't see each other enough. Andy Gullihorn and Jill Phillips, we just don't see each other enough. Mm -mm. I agree. Ding, dang it. You need to get those kids all grown up (laughs) so we can go out and party at night. I know. It's going to be a long time. Oh, I'll be retired and too tired to go out by then. Well, you can carry me out on a pallet into restaurants and bars and stuff like that. Lower you through the roof. Because Lord knows they used to carry me out on one, so. (laughs) (laughs) Might as well carry you in on one. That's right, carry me in on one, yeah, exactly. Well, we are so delighted to have both of you. For those of you who don't know Andy and Jill, no fooling, two of the finest artists, musicians, lyricists, uh, and singers that that I know. And uh, we've done so many retreats together, and um, I just have a profound affection for both of you. Back at you. Yeah, I feel the same. So, you know, I'm, I'm all into um, music for its soothing and life-giving things for me, but I'm not a good qualifier in terms of who's a really great musician and who isn't. If I love you and I love your music, then you're great. But what I would say is that you're just two of the finest human beings I've ever met. Mm. And I, too, have gotten to do some things with you, and Jill's one of my apprentices now. And I when I, I have a list every year of young people, younger than me, that I'm trying to learn from. And you guys have been on the list since the first October that we did Telemachus together because Ian brought us all together. And you've taught me a lot in these three years. So I'm glad you're here too. Mm-hmm. Man, thank you so much. Yeah, so we need to take to them here. around with us to yeah. tell us these things. Yes, well, you do. You do because we don't get to travel much. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And, you know, that would be great. So you guys, tell us, uh, tell us about your numbers on the Enneagram and uh, how you actually first became acquainted with it. I'll go first. Uh, I'm a nine. Um, and I, I grew up in the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and um, my parents were really into the Enneagram at some point as a kid. Uh, so I th- I've known that I've, I was a nine since my teenage years. Um, and so I always kind of knew about it, and when we first got married, we talked a little bit about it. Um, but I've really been digging deep into it, uh, well, the last number of years, especially since meeting Suzanne, however many years ago that was. Not enough. Not enough. Uh, but boy, there's, there's always more stuff to dig into. Um, but I'm definitely a nine. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, you are. Yeah. 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 Oh, yes, you are. I have some, Suzanne and I both being married to nines, we we and being a father to a nine, right? And you would mother to a nine. We we uh, we got some experience there. Well, I'm a six. Um, 
I first found out that I was a six from my friend Nita Andrews, who kind of helped me to see, I think it was in about 2003. So that's when I first started being exposed to the Enneagram. And I went about, you know, this deep, like a little deep with it. Um, But when I first started hearing Suzanne teach, it was just like the world opened to me um, with the Enneagram. Um, So, yeah. And you thought you were a two at first, right? I thought I was everything. Yeah, and then six territory. Yeah, that's right. Sixes, yeah. And I hear now that that's like pretty cliche, and that sixes never know what they are. If you don't know what you are, you're six or a nine. And I remember going into Nita and saying, "I think maybe I'm a two, yeah. maybe a three, maybe a four. <laughs> and she very lovingly, <laughs> gently said to me, "Why don't you go home and maybe read about a six? And I was like, "No, that's my dad." <laughs> That's good. That's so, good. My dad's a six, and yeah. she's like, ah, maybe, maybe you, maybe you too. You want to share with our folks uh, who are listening what, the inside joke about, not joke, but the um, why it is that a six would have issues trying to determine their number. No, uh, from me? Yeah, from you. Well, I think because we don't trust ourselves, mm-hmm. and we don't know ourselves, and... um and my mom was a two. Um, I have I'm a two-ish six, so I sort of identified with what I now understand as the dependent part of my personality, the other-centered people part of my mm-hmm. personality. And um, I didn't realize the needs, like the core needs. But once I heard that, I was like, "Oh yeah, mm-hmm. that's me. That's me." And those core needs, as you experience them, are. To feel safe and secure, mm-hmm. yeah. To feel safe in all in all things and with people and in situations, and it's not to be needed, um, which is you know the two's core need. It's definitely to create a safe space for myself and for others mm-hmm. um, yeah. to to be safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things I would say too is that I think the fact that you are. Um, so these these words are mine. They may not mean anything. I'll have to explain them probably. But you are a young, old-timey Christian woman. I like that. Tell me more about that. Well, I think I think that's the reason you identified as a two. Ah, I see what you're saying. Right? Because more like roles in life. Exactly. Because yeah. you're young and you and you're a professional, mm-hmm. and you have all of the. Uh, success and opportunities that you can manage, probably. Yeah. But at the same time, there is a a place where you have a role mm-hmm. as a wife and a mother, and as a woman in um, the South. Yeah. Which makes lots of sixes think that maybe they're twos. Yeah. Because they are adapting to live into the role of a Southern woman. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. That just happens a lot. So I know that if I do a women's retreat and there are 150 women there, and if 60, 60 of 150 will identify as two, and maybe 20 of them are, and the other 40 are sixes. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And And it's okay, but I think we need to name it. Yeah. And I needed, actually, what I needed was somebody else to help me. Sure. Sure. And that's kind of embarrassing, but it's true. I really needed somebody else to kind of say, read this. And as soon as I did, I was like, that is me. Yeah. That's me. You know, just as an encouragement to you, and I think to everyone listening, um, unlike the Colby, the Myers-Briggs, the Strength Finders, all great tools. I mean, you know, we can't put them down. They, they really help people. But 
because of the dynamic nature of the Enneagram and because of its capacity to unearth both, both you know, our, our shadows and light, you know, mm-hmm. our blessings and blights, if you will, you know, it can take long. It can, you know, it was a year for me before I really nailed my Enneagram type. And I always just tell people, I personally think it was a gift because it gave me a journey to know all nine types. Like I had to do research, I had to do some work, whereas in the Colby, bang, there you are. You know, you just, that's what it is. That's what it is. And uh, so anyhow, I, I, I always tell people, don't, don't be discouraged. Can't fail a personality, you know, profile. You, you got one. Don't yeah. panic, you know. <laughs> yeah, and it's real important, and you were good at this, to give yourself time and space to say, you know, I, th- I thought I was that, but I... I'm not sure I am now that I've observed myself for a while. And some people don't have the don't have the grace for themselves to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And what a waste of time yeah. to spend your life working on being a number that you're not. Yeah, but I also called you once a week and told you about my yes. new number. Yes, so that was fun. Yeah, for me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for you it was entertaining. Billable hours. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm a seven. I'm sure of it. <laughs> I do remember that morning well. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Oh, I'm, actually, apparently you do because you actually have the time of day imprinted on your mind. And, Andy, Andy, you're a nine. Tell us about what that's about for you and what that. What does being a nine mean to you? What's that like? I've always loved being a nine because I always just thought about it as, um, you know, I'm pretty peaceful. Um, the hard thing about... Uh, I feel like I can get along with just about anybody. Um, pretty easygoing. Uh, the hard thing about doing work in the Enneagram is there's so many ways off the bat that I knew that it was true. I mean, things that rang true with me. And then there are other parts of it that I was like, well, I don't, I don't know that my presence doesn't matter or, you know, I don't know that anger is just below the surface. Come on. I mean, look at me. Do you want to talk to us? We can talk to you about that if you like. Well, I mean, the problem is the more work I do, the, the more I find that that stuff is true yeah. too. And it's, uh, you know, it's those aren't my favorite parts of right. being a nine. Right. Um, I've heard Joe, your husband, say that, that uh, you know, it's his anger mm-hmm. is what scares him. Yeah. I'd say the same thing. I, I think the more work I'm doing trying to, like, pay attention to myself, I kind of see... That those things, the, the parts I didn't relate to as much, mm-hmm. um, I see they're kind of like running the system yeah. uh, most of the time. So that's that's scary. Um, but I still, you know, the way that it kind of manifests itself in my life, I feel like, uh, you know, the stereotypes of kind of like seeing two sides to everything and then kind of just sitting on the fence. Um, that's definitely, I can kind of embrace that about myself. Mm-hmm. Um I definitely have a hard time prioritizing, and and I definitely, uh, Jill and I were driving home from North Carolina yesterday after a weekend of shows, and I was like, I really need to get this done this week, you know, and and we got home, you know, like around noon or something like that, and I immediately uh, started doing yard work uh, because I had all this other stuff I need to do. There you go. And that's, I mean, that's, and, you know, Jill texted me in the middle of it and said, are you okay? And I was like... Yeah, I'm okay. I just think I know I'm doing unproductive doing, but um, but I think I need to do this before I I actually get onto something that I need to do. But it, so it's kind of like you know we can see it. But I'm stereotypical 
uh, nine in that way. You know, I think sometimes people um, think that they need to immediately disidentify with those aspects of their personality that don't work anymore. You know, they, I was thinking again about that great line about what what got you here won't get you there. You know that that line for some reason at three o'clock this morning kept running through my head. So those 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 dimensions of who we are that helped us get through critical periods of our lives and early childhood that later uh, actually work against us. You, I don't think I think there are times when, for example, when a one the perfectionist is all worked up and they're outside on the front lawn hoovering the pollen off the grass because they just they you know. It's. It wouldn't be smart for us to actually, in in certain moments, we, we should wait before we go. How's it going? You know, because that's a soothing place to go. And so, rather than say you're being all nine right now and you got to stop it because that's spiritual growth, it's like no, it's more nuanced than that. You know. Do you agree, Suzanne? That that's sure. I I think the important thing about what happened is that it's awareness. You mm-hmm. know, the, the place where the territory is dangerous is when you're not aware. Yeah. That you're not doing what needs to be done, but what you are doing feels like the right thing at the time. Yeah. And there's no right, wrong way about that Right. that I can see. So y'all can't see this out there, but I'm holding up a picture of the first time that I met Andy. Uh, can you see that over there, Suzanne? Yeah, so sweet. It was at the Wild Goose Festival. Jill had put us together, and, mm-hmm. and uh, that was the beginning of a long and troubled relationship. Yes. <laughs> um, well, I, I'm curious to know... For, from you guys, how being a nine and a six, what the dynamics of that are like in your marriage and in your parenting? You know, like how does that, you got kids at home still? Yeah. I think both of us um, are very relational. It, we've always had kind of a people first sort of attitude about life, um, which I've always thought is is better, like better way to live. But sometimes it means things don't get done. Um, you know, we had a plaster crack in our living room for about a year and a half. Yeah. Cause it's people first, you know, whatever mm-hmm. that'll, that'll get taken care of at some point. Sure. Did you do booze with Sue's with a past plaster crack? In oh, the you know, room? we did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We've had an Enneagram. Um, we're going through the group curriculum, the know, uh, the know your number, um, with a group and we called it booze with Sue's cause we would have appetizers and cocktails and it was amazing, but totally the plaster crack was there. Every time, and I'd laugh about it and kind of point it out. Not a priority. <laughs> well, and nobody cares. Nobody, nope. nobody cares. No, s- some people, some people care. did care. <laughs> oh, they did. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I've done booze with Suze, but I was the designated driver. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I can tell you, that's something. <laughs> it's got a tornadic feel yeah. about it that you just... <laughs> it happens very seldom, but when it does, it's memorable. Oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> So uh, before we before we go too far from that yeah. dynamic, I want to talk about the fact that you're on the central triangle of the Enneagram. Yeah. So really, when we talk about moves to stress and security, and we're dealing with two people who are on the triangle, then you all mm-hmm. are very predictable to one another mm. because mm-hmm. you you all you're dealing with is three six nine, and you're going to those numbers in stress and security and Sometimes you're saying what the other one would say, right? You're because of the stress move and the security move. Do y'all notice that? Do you 
because you are two of the three, are you tuned in to when you're in three space, when the the number three behavior is influencing you? Is any of that going on? Yeah, I think so. Especially, um, I would say in the past couple of years, because we're both performers, we're both on stage. And so um, I really don't know many six musicians. I know one. Right. One other one <laughs> in all these years. And I always thought, that is so interesting. Mm-hmm. That is fascinating that I do this job. And it's really unnatural for a six to do this job. Yes, it is. And I was thinking, it's because I am in three space when I'm on stage. And he is in three space, I think, when he's on stage. Exactly. And you said it's for totally different reasons. Exactly. Because I am in stress right. and he is in total comfort. That's so it. we have learned to like put that energy out to do our jobs yeah. and to do it well. And I can totally detach from that. Um, I can detach on stage. I can detach and do my job. Well, let me say this. I think with that, when the two of you are on stage, you are recognizable and you still have all the good stuff that you have. But but there's, an, there's almost an unapproachability that's a good thing mm-hmm. that, that separates you performing from you as people. It's a good thing. I don't think I'll ever get to have this conversation with anybody else ever again because I don't think I'll have this with performers and all that. But, you know, when you put Joe, who's an introverted nine, in a robe and a stole, he's a three instantly. Yes, I've seen that. It's fascinating. Yeah, man. He just he just takes that space, yeah. right? He just yeah. suddenly—and um, this is something you all do, that, and those of you who have seen Andy and Jill perform know this. You hold the space, which is your job. You know, like you just hold the space and and, and uh, um, sonically make it a safe, inviting, uh, entertaining. Nothing wrong with that word. You know, there's nothing false about it. A uh, place for people. And so, you know, what the heck? I I I go to one when I'm stressed out, and I sometimes have to be talked off the ledge uh, because I get so fixed. This is when I'm writing. I'm so fixated. I mean, it's just stupid. It's stupid how fixated, you know. But I know where I am. This goes to that self-awareness thing. And I know, okay, you've been in the, the house for three days moving one comma back and forth in the same sentence. You might need to go out and take a run, mm-hmm. you know. Um, sometimes it takes three yeah. days. Sometimes it takes three hours to figure out where I am. But, man, that's a gift of the Enneagram. One of the things, too, that I'm aware of from uh, watching you guys and being with you in Dallas for Behold the Lamb Mm -hmm. is that um, when you're on stage, you are that three thing. And then we went downstairs at the church, and you were playing ping pong, Mm -hmm. and you were hoping people wouldn't come talk to you. (laughs) 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 And it's like, and a three— would be greeting the people who came backstage yeah. to say hello and to tell you how great the music was. Yeah. It's like as soon as you leave the stage, then you're back as a nine and a six. Oh, that's yeah. very true. And I think that's really true. Yeah. It's fascinating to watch all well, what's that. the game with the bean bags again that you like? So you, you cornhole. Always, cornhole, yeah. I grew up in Connecticut. We didn't have cornhole. We we had sherry and cream sandwich, cream cheese sandwich. <laughs> You and know, croquet. I, we had croquet. Lot, yeah. We had croquet and we had to wear whites. Oh, oh it's too bad. Because um, there's nothing like cornhole. Yeah, no, I've played it with, I've, I've played it. I mean, and actually, we, we actually ended up playing it at, at Maddie, my daughter's, and uh, uh, what's his name again? Paul, my new son in law. He's new. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. 
Sorry. Uh, at their <laughs> wedding, and adorable. I won. And I won. What? I did. I won. And I Whose won team the were you on? And, and what? Whose team were you, you on? Go. I, oh. <laughs> that that was, is the question. That, that, that's going to stay with me a long time. <laughs> I just want you to know that. So can we just talk about parenting for a second? Sure. Because, yeah. you know, what are the challenges and the joys of being a nine and a six parenting? Really cool kids, by the way. Thank you. Really cool kids. They're yep. pretty great. Yeah, they're pretty cool. I think um, one of my strong suits as a parent is that I'm really relational. I really care about my kids as individual beings. Um, I want to know them. I want to love them well. Um, I don't want them to have to conform to who I am. I feel like I really just want to um, nurture who they are. And um, I, lo- I love that. I think, and I want to create a safe space for them to grow up. So I think that is a, that's an asset. Um, I think something that's really hard for me is consistent discipline <laughs> and like entering into conflict. That's really hard for me. Hmm. I want to just, um, I think Andy and I both, you can speak for yourself, but I think we both just would rather things sort of work themselves out. <laughs> it can Doesn't work happen. it out. Yes. Let happen, it work it out. You know? <laughs> so we've had to really intentionally work on, um, I mean, I would say a, a typical pattern for us in the past has just been like, you deal with it. No, you deal with it. You deal with it. No, can you? Neither one of us wants to do that hard thing. And um, we've had to learn to do that, both of us. We've had to learn to enter into the conflict and and the hard thing and um, give consistent consequences. And um, the relational part feels easy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. What would you say? Yeah, I think parenting, I mean... I don't know how much of it is is just specific to the Enneagram, but but for me, the seeing two sides to everything is like when the, our kids will make an argument for something, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, I could see why you would want to do that. Okay, that's a good argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and and kind of and kind of being like, well, no, it's this way because I say it's this way. That's hard for me to do. It's it's uh, I kind of want to support an argument for me from both sides. Um, but we've, I mean, we've definitely. Uh, worked on that for a long time, um, and I think we're getting uh, better at it. But who knows? You have to ask our kids. Actually, don't ask our kids. <laughs> uh, a weird thing too is that we think that that two of our or our two boys are on that same triangle. Yeah. So, uh, uh, the only one who's not is our daughter, who is the best. One hundred and ten percent of four, and. Um, I was telling somebody earlier, I was like, that's got to be hard for her. And, and um, Suzanne was like, or great, or great. She's definitely <laughs> unique. The, we're, the rest of us, our whole family is on that 369 yeah. triangle. We are yeah. constantly, we, we get each other. We totally get each other. We're moving to each other's energies all the time. And, um, and then my daughter's just out there going, what is the matter with you people? Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, though, she would be out there for unexplainable reasons. So it's, it actually kind of works. Yeah. You know, um, there are two kinds of, two variants of sixes, yeah. um, if you will. And uh, they're not really separable. I mean, I think sometimes people want to say, oh, you're a phobic six or a counterphobic six. I'll let you kind of explain that. But, um, you know, I think sixes kind of are always on the continuum somewhere between those two, you know, depending on the time or what, what's yeah. going on. Which are you? 
And uh, what's that experience like? Can you describe them and, and then like where you are? And Yeah. Well, I'm definitely a phobic six, not a counterphobic. Um, I have struggled with fear and anxiety my whole life, ever since I was a little kid. Um, I can remember laying awake thinking about a band test the next day. A band? A band test, like a playing test. Those are usually pretty rigorous. What, what yeah. instrument did you play? <laughs> Tell me it was clarinet. No, it was the flute. Okay. The other obvious choice for me, right? <laughs> yeah. I played the flute and the piccolo. I mean, come oh, that's on. Kind of, that's cute, though. That's kind of a uh, sweet yeah. thing. You know? I would love mm-hmm. this story so much more, though, if you'd said trombone. The contra- <laughs> me, no. as, as a four, I would have liked if she said contrabassoon. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. You know? It straight up. Your normal flute player, right? <laughs> so conscientious, practicing, Fastball doing down the, the whole deal. Yeah. And I would just lay awake and think, I, I remember one night not being able to sleep mm. because there was a playing test the next morning. And I remember thinking, I know other people don't feel this way. <laughs> like, mm. I know other people don't have this anxiety. And what is so funny is when I show up, I can always do it. I'm always prepared. I'm usually like able to do the thing that I fear. And so it's all this energy wasted, um, you know, when I was younger on just fearing these things. And um, I'm, I've really learned, it, it's gotten a lot better, um, but, it, but it's always there. So, I wanna, oh, I'm oh, sorry, Susan. I, I just want to talk about that a little bit um, because one of the things that I think is one of the best things I offer people is that you can't take care of yourself without the number that you go to in security. Yeah. I mean, in stress. And you can't experience holistic healing without the number you go to in security. And I want to I wanna just circle back to the whole performance piece mm-hmm. because, um, and I'm not blowing smoke, your music is transformative, both of you, but I'm talking about yours right now for people. And if you didn't have three energy, mm-hmm. you would not be a performer. That's so you true. You wouldn't be one. And I think there's a, 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 sometimes we talk about the hard side of the Enneagram without talking about the graciousness and the mystical goodness of the Enneagram. And the fact that you have the talent that you have and that because of the reality of how the, the, this wisdom system works, mm-hmm. You have what you need to walk on stage and perform and give yeah. that to people. I think that is grace-filled, and I'm so thankful for it. And I, 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 we don't often get that clear an opportunity to talk about how, how much goodness there is and how this wisdom plays out. So yeah. I didn't want to miss that. Mm. I agree, and I didn't know. That's the amazing thing, yeah. too, is that that was just something that was sort of organically happening in my body. It gave me what I needed to do my job, yeah. and I had no idea so much later that that's what was going on. Mm. I just knew I was tired when I would get off stage, yeah, you know? Nothing left. just kind of cost me something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's the performance piece like for you? When you go to three, what does it give you and what does it cost you? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I just know that it's uh, before knowing that you know, Jill went to three in, in stress and I went there in security. Um, I mean, that made a lot of sense just hearing that because we've been playing shows together for forever, 20 years. Yeah. And um, the dynamic is always, um, I kind of, I don't know that I've ever been nervous for a show on stage. It's just kind of like, oh, I can, I can do this. And I'm not like a, you know, 
I, I mean, I'm confident, but I'm not a, uh, I don't think of myself as like a, a big artist or something like that. But when I get on stage, I'm like, oh, I, I can totally do this. Yeah. And so in the conversations leading up to a show um, and around a show, it's, I know how stressful it is uh, for Jill a lot of that too is we have little kids, you know, you're changing a diaper five minutes before right. walking on yeah. stage. But like, as soon as I get on stage, I'm like, oh, I could go, I mean, I could play for five hours. Right, right. Um, and then when I'm done, I'm kind of like amped up. Yep. Um, but you're right. I, I never thought about, you know, talking about coming backstage at that show in Dallas. Um, as soon as, you know, a lot of times on the Christmas tour, yeah. it's not just in the green room, you know, I'll be playing some game in the hallway or if there's like a two-minute break, right. I'm out just doing something totally different that's not – I don't care so much about the artist side, but when I'm on stage, it does feel like it's a comfortable place for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I don't know what that looks like uh, from the outside, but it, just saying that um, I really don't think there's been a time when I was nervous about yep. playing music. Um, the thing that's interesting too, in, in in watching the two of you, is that um, you 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 know there's big language now in sports about leaving it all on the court, mm. leaving it all on the field. I, I'm an athlete and a former coach, and I think that's so silly. But you don't seem to need to bring anything from the performance with you. You you mm-hmm. do seem to leave that experience there, mm-hmm. and it was what it was, and then you're back at mowing the lawn or doing. I just want to be normal. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. I think that's really that's something I like about being a six in a town like Nashville. Mm-hmm. I've really grown to understand that this is a very fourish, threeish town, and I mean it has to be to survive. Like that's the beauty of the arts, you know, um, is people have a vision, they have. Um, their thing that they do and being a six in this town, I love it. Yep. Cause I don't need to, it doesn't need to be my vision. Right. Um, I'll come alongside you and, um, support you and feel like, um, just super happy to do that. Yeah. And when I walk off the stage, well, there's a quote that Annie and I have talked about a lot over the years. It's a David Wilcox quote. And he said, um, when you go to like a pop show, their job is to try to convince you that they're different, mm-hmm. that they're special. And, um, he said in folk music, it's to try to convince everybody that we're all the same. Mm-hmm. And I think our philosophy has always been, and now with the Enneagram, I understand why. It has always been, we are all the same. Yeah. We are all the same. We're not special. We're not different. We're just like you. And um, so when I walk off the stage, I want people to know I'm just like you. Yeah. I want to have a conversation. I don't want them to think I'm awesome or amazing. I want to talk about their kids. Yeah. I want them to feel like I'm their friend. Yeah. I, and I think that's, we. I think we both feel that's the way to be. Absolutely. Like, and some of the work that we've done, uh, thanks to the Enneagram, is seeing like, well, it's not always what should be done. Like There, there are ways in which yeah. we will kind of, I mean, thinking we're doing the right thing, mm-hmm. kind of having no boundaries, mm-hmm. uh, kind of just... Oh, this person wants they they want to go to eat after the show, or they want yeah. to do this. Like, oh, well, we should. Like, yeah, we like doing that kind of stuff. But then we're not thinking about like what's healthy for us, right. uh, time wise, or, or kind of draining stuff. But yeah. but I still feel like in general, some of that is just being aware of it, yeah. and and that has already been changing things for us. But still, we you know 
we we wouldn't want anybody to feel like we're any different than them uh, because we played, you know, because of what we do. Joe and I kind of are living by a rule where we have a thing on Monday mornings where we don't talk about the weekend. We don't talk about his experiences teaching or his experience in worship or the weddings he did or where I taught because that's over. Mm-hmm. And when we bring that into Monday morning, it prevents us being us and taking care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's like you, we, we three numbers have to, all four of us, all four numbers at the table, have to create a boundary around what we do performance-wise or professionally, yeah. or it gets bigger than we are. Mm. Yeah. Yes, that, that's true. Um, so we were talking earlier about the two types of sixes, mm-hmm. right? That we've got this phobic six and that... Sixes are very focused on authority. There's a degree of skepticism or uh, suspicion, maybe too strong, but wariness. How's that? Wariness and uh, skepticism. Is this a good person, bad person? Do they have a hidden agenda? What's going on behind the mask here? You know, are they for me? Are they against me? Is this going to be a good thing, a bad thing? Mm-hmm. So, phobic sixes, in a in a in a way, in a, in a in a strategy to find security and safety, right? They try and please authority figures. They're, they're probably, I always think of the kid who brings the apple to school and puts it on the teacher's desk. I mean, it's sort of pleasing behaviors, right, to the toward the authority figure. And the counterphobic six does just the opposite, right? Or apparently the opposite, but for the same reasons, yeah. right? They're, to find safety and security, they actually go on the attack. They, wanna, they, they will bring down, if necessary, an authority figure. They want to conquer, literally conquer, the, the, what they believe is the source of danger or fear rather than submit to it. So when you go on the spectrum toward that, mm-hmm. you're a phobic side. So when you go over toward the counterphobic side, yep. what, what's that like? Well, um, I think I was, this example came to mind from childhood. This is going to be, be ridiculous, but I remember I grew up in the in the Southern Baptist Church, and um, really good kid, right? Good kid, um, everybody's friend, friendliest in the senior class. You know that was like my identity. Was that in the yearbook? Oh yeah. Oh no. yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Heck yeah. Um, and I remember. Um, the Sunday school teacher saying at some point, we're all going to stop listening to what they called secular music. Like nobody, we're not going to listen to secular music. I loved music. At the time, I really loved Aerosmith (laughs) of all the things. Why wouldn't you? Right. And I was just like, no, I'm not going to do that. And um, I just remember kind of just silently sitting there like, no, I'm not doing that. And um, they said, yeah, we're going to, you know, why don't you put all your CDs and tapes and all this? And I was like, no. And not only did I say no, but I convinced everybody else why it was a stupid idea to do that and why they shouldn't do that. And they just gave up. So you formed a rebellion. I formed a rebellion. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, that's a that's a great narrative right there. So that I could listen to like, Jamie's yeah. got a gun. Yeah. Or dude looks like a lady. Yeah. I can't, sorry. Yeah, I, I sing that song like, myself no, this sometimes. Is dumb. <laughs> so I just felt, I felt my, my power and strength and I, w- I convinced everybody. Yeah. They totally listened to me. Yeah. And then we didn't do it. You know, uh, Andy, my favorite story that I think of often about you, and this is tangential, but it's a little color commentary, is the night that Willie Nelson, you you, you wanted originally to become a country writer, mm-hmm. right? Moved to Nashville and become a country writer. And uh, could you just give that story in 30 seconds? Because it's just great color. And it does actually say something about you. I've seen the picture. I mean, 
I've seen the 12 by 12 foot poster in your house. Skinny cowboy. Yeah. The, well, the greatest moments of my music career all happened when I was like in high school. <laughs> and this is, I mean, one of them was that I started playing guitar in high school and um, I learned guitar really quickly because I'd been playing piano for a long time. And it just kind of took off. And this woman who worked with my dad at a law firm, she had kind of a country cover band. And she asked if I wanted to play rhythm guitar for some event outside of Austin. I was like, sure. So I just brought my guitar and we were playing cover country songs. And then uh, it was in Pedernales, uh, Texas. And and, um, Willie, like maybe four songs in, Willie just kind of walked up. We were playing at this fire hall and people were dancing kind of in the driveway. And okay, we'll, okay, I just want you to know, I love the visual of that. You're playing at a fire hall. <laughs> and what was the name of the town? Pedernales. Pedernales, Texas, and people were dancing in the driveway. Yeah, that's it was kind of like we, a... That's how we grew up now. Yeah, it's kind of like... You know, I'm just, just saying I envy it. That's all. Yeah, it, it was It, it was, was awesome. beautiful. It it's was beautiful. great. Yeah. Yeah, and then it gets even more beautiful. when It, it, it was Willie's birthday, by the way, uh, and he just walked up. It was, it was like right next to his farm, I guess. Yeah. And uh, he knew the lady who was singing, and they did, talked and... And she said, well, you want to play some songs? He's like, yeah, sure. So then he gets up and I don't know, he played for a couple hours, I guess. And I'm, I was just the guitar player in the band and just sing harmony with, I mean, I knew all the songs. So I, I just kind of, he'd tell me what key it was. And then, you know, I was like 16 or 17 years old. And then that was like my first gig is playing with Willie Nelson. And then, uh, but I never really met him. I mean, afterwards I said, thanks. He goes, thank you. And that was it. <laughs> It's uh, well, it all so, downhill from there, well, too. You know what? I just want you to know the big turn in your career would have been said, do you want to go outside and smoke a joint? You'd still be in his band if you had said that. That is so true. <laughs> um, a lot of other things would have gone awry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like you would never have yeah. met a girl who the went to a Southern part of my life. church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. the yeah. rebellious one who won't listen to secular music. Yeah, that yeah. kind of that leaves out the old-timey Christian gal from yeah. the South. Yeah. So I, I have a question for you, Andy. Uh, what does it mean for you to take yourself seriously? And and let me just add to that, not just taking yourself seriously, but taking your way of being in the world and your contribution to the world seriously. I want to answer like I know what the answer is. Yeah? Just start talking. Um, I mean, I want to, but I don't know that I can. Just start um, talking. I would say... Uh, I think there are moments where I can feel like I have something to offer the world. Um, and I think I, sometimes I'm in tune with that. Um, actually, you know, as a nine being kind of body-centered, I think the ways that, that I have used that, uh, what I have to offer the world, has been more instinctual than me actually knowing what I'm doing. Yeah. It's, it's really been, you know, like I'll, I'll step into writing a song and really have no clue what I'm writing about. And then the song kind of comes out and like, oh yeah, okay, I can get behind that. Right. And um, but it's really not, it's me kind of being asleep to whatever that gift or power is. Um so I'm I'm trying to um I don't know, I'm I'm trying to step into that. Uh I remember you telling me about my presence mattering. And I'm like, oh yeah, sure. I know my presence matters. People tell me that all the time. They say, this song means this to me or whatever. And you're like, no, it's not what you do. It's like that you're, that you have something to that's bring right. to the table. And that's one of those parts of Enneagram. I'm like, well, all this other stuff is true about it. 
that must be true, and I need to to figure out what that's like in my right. life. And I'm I haven't figured it out, but I'm slowly moving in that direction. Well, I was going to say one thing you said too recently was that in the work that we're doing, um, you said that it was hard for you to separate your presence mattering as a person from your work. Right. Like whenever somebody said your presence matters, you would always say my songs, my records, my this, not, not him as a person. Mm-hmm. And um, so that feels very nine-ish to me. One of the things I'm working on right now, it's new work for me, is um, I'm trying to find ways to articulate vulnerability in every number. Hmm. Because, you know, people who do deep Enneagram work are, are really risking a lot of vulnerability in the room where I am and with one another. And I, I'm not sure I've been mindful enough about that. So in my work about what what is vulnerability in every number? I'm beginning to land on that I think vulnerability for nines, what makes you vulnerable, is when you don't recognize that your presence matters. Mm. Because then it feels like what you do doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you do it or if you don't do it. It is going to be inconsequential. And when things are considered inconsequential in one spot, when you consider yourself inconsequential, that ultimately gets t- takes over. It takes over across the board. Mm. And then you can't hear, maybe, what other people need from you or what other people want from you. And I think that all stems back to not being able to embrace that your presence matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, um, we, we want to get to something really special, which is to hear you guys play a song, okay? But before we do, I want to ask, Jill, you another question, because this is such a feature. This is such a hallmark feature. I of, of sixes. I grew up around a lot of sixes, and I love sixes. I have a special affection for sixes. Aww. And what's fascinating, too, is sixes are always surprised when I think, at least when I tell them, that I have a special affection for them because I don't think they hear it enough or something. But um, I, I um, had a woman who raised me, and this is not my mom, but, but uh, another woman who raised me, uh, and she was a six. Mm-hmm. And we used to laugh and say she had pre-traumatic stress disorder <laughs> because she was a worst-case scenario thinker. She was always planning for the worst. Yeah. I mean, you know, we lived in Greenwich, Connecticut, and she'd make us lock the car for fear we'd be car- hijacked. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like It's like, whoa, that doesn't happen here, you know? Yeah. What, what for you or for Andy, maybe you can tell a story, but, you know, like, uh, wh- what is that about? Like, do you do that? Yes, I do. Um, I've gotten so much better at being able to articulate it and say it and sort of cut it off at the pass Mm. because of Enneagram work. Instead of just internalizing it and stewing over it, what I do now is I say it to Andy. I'm like, Andy, this is crazy. Um, I have a doctor's appointment Monday and I'm scared. And, um, and then, so we just talk about it. And then it just kind of diffuses some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say as a kid, well, I've been through a lot of trauma and suffering. Um, and so as a six, I have had to learn a lot of faith, a lot of faith. I've had to go through a lot of really, really scary things. And um, I lost my dad at a young age. And um, I feel like anxiety for me... Um, I think in early life centered around, like after he died, it centered around medical stuff. Um, so that's that was my chaining, as Suzanne calls it. It would be like, okay, my dad died unexpectedly. My uncle died. I'm going to die. 
that's what it would look like um, for me. And I had to do a lot of work around that, um, just that chaining. And so still to this day, um, it's different. It's way different now because I've had to learn to face my fears so much. And being a musician, my life is about facing my fears. There's nothing safe or comfortable. But I have to say it to Andy. I have to say, I'm going to the doctor. I'm afraid. Um, And it hasn't just been your work either. It's been... My work too, to the, the way like Jill will kind of her nature would be to kind of overstate fears, and mine would be like, oh, that's not a big deal. Yeah. So like I'm like way yes. minimizing things. So then she has to kind of like turn up the volume to try to bring me up to like a normal right. level of yep. awareness. So for me to not just be like, oh, that's ridiculous. There's you know whatever to to like listen to her and say, okay, well if if the d- test did come back in a bad way, then then. What would we do? We would mm-hmm. like to kind of walk that out Perfect. with her. Yeah. And so it's both of us kind of like coming to a place of talking about what's going on rather than her uh, kind of raising it up and me just, because I will just minimize it as much as she uh, raises up the fear. So yeah. um, one of the things I want to just also just tail off with is you do two things that I think tie into nine, I think, but maybe you could highlight it. One is the, the weekly bowling. Mm-hmm. deal here in town and uh what you do uh with gabe which i think is so fascinating can you describe those two because i think people would love to know about them and, and only and a nine only a nine would do this i think they both tie to being a nine because they're both incredibly unproductive <laughs> doing uh kind of for you but i mean okay go ahead well i mean the bowling thing is just it started Maybe nine, wait, when Drew was seven and he's 50, okay, eight years ago. Um, and I was just kind of meeting friends to bowl for lunch and then told other friends and they started coming and then I started keeping score, which uh, I love to keep score and spreadsheets and that kind of stuff. I'm pretty competitive. And uh, so we've been having uh, a bowling lunch every week for eight years. Who um, comes? Who comes and how many? Well, I mean, there's there'd normally be about, you know, between eight and 15 guys there every week, but there have been... On my rolls, on my spreadsheets, like 275 yeah. guys. Um, spreadsheets. Spreadsheets, right? Uh, um, for bowling. Right. For bowling. I I mean, know, that's a really right? important part, too. That's I a know, good place to go when you got to pay your taxes because they're a week late for a nine. They can just go, I got to go work on the Excel sheet for bowling. Yeah. So, I, you know, you, and you also do this wonderful thing where you actually, it's almost like some kind of royal moment where you actually bestow a name, a uh, a new name on on. Oh, it's one of my spiritual gifts, yeah. Yes. Nicknames. Nicknames. I got Iron Crow. Yeah. <laughs> I got I got Iron Crow. Which totally makes sense. You're Easy Money. Yeah, I don't I don't like my nickname, but I couldn't give myself a nickname. So the bowling manager, yeah. one day he said, what's up, Easy Money? And I was like, oh, I guess the bowling manager calls me that. That has to be my name. But yeah, I, it's actually a hint, but don't, don't worry yeah, about it. No, it totally uh, makes sense. Now, okay, tell, tell us the, the Gabe thing, because it's become a renowned story, really, here in Nashville and beyond. Well, that my friend Gabe, who's also a nine, um, he, uh, he's just one of my best friends in the world, and we didn't have, we're, we're not spending as much time together as we wanted. We'd travel together on this Christmas tour every December and then not see each other. You know what that's like. You've been, mm-hmm. you've been here since August, and I haven't seen you, really. Um, but he lives a mile and a half away and I just decided a way for us to stay in each other's lives was to, well, we could have just met for coffee, I guess. There's that. Um, (laughs) but instead I just said, let's, um, let's walk towards each other's houses. We'll leave at the same time and we'll meet in the middle and give each other a high five and then we'll walk back home. Mm -hmm. And and the, the deal was if we said at the beginning, if we could do that 
once a week for 10 years, then we would surely they do a story about us on like CBS Sunday morning or this American life or something like that. So that was our goal. Uh, and we've been doing How it. How to waste your one wild and precious this American life. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it, I say, you know, I try to legitimize it by saying, you know, I'm, I'm pushing back at, at, you know, being efficient in life and just doing something that's spiritual discipline, which you it is. You it a spiritual discipline. It is a yeah. spiritual discipline. Well, you know, Joe Stabile gives everybody permission for that. He, he yeah. quickly says anything can be a spiritual discipline. Oh, it is. And well, it's all moderation, isn't it? I suppose it's a thing. it is. That's what? who he is. Like moderation. He's, this is what brings him joy. This is what brings him life. Right. Like th- these are, this is always how he's going to be, you know? What I'm trying to just imagine, let's see if we can conjure this up collectively, is me walking half of a mile and a half to meet somebody, to just give them a high five and not have a conversation and a hug and how's your family. Oh, yeah. And I got some pictures to show you and I brought coffee today. Well, right? we normally do talk. We normally talk a lot. Oh, good. That uh, helps but, but me there, so much. But let me tell you something. The time, the first time we did a silent high five, which is when you, you walk the three quarters of a mile and then you just pass each other without acknowledging each other, 20 paces, turn around, give a five and then just walk back home. No talking. Like that would be hard for you. It was hard for me because this is my buddy. I, I'm doing this because I want to spend time with him. Yeah. And to not talk to him, uh, I was like, this is a waste of time. It's a waste of 30 minutes. But it was, it was, I mean, that's it's going to sound practice. overstating. It, it, it was amazing. Yeah. That's the spiritual practice. And so right, we, yeah. we try to do that a number of times just because well, it, 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 it means something that we don't even know what it means. You said it makes you guys somewhere deep down know that your presence matters. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. they're walking so to give, you know, yeah. there's no exchange. Yeah. There's a great story about, St. Francis and St. Dominic, who were contemporaries, didn't know each other, met for three days, said hello when they got there and goodbye when they left, and they didn't talk any of the rest of the time, and then they both talked about how great it was. Mm -hmm. And Joe keeps telling me that story over and over, (laughs) and I think it's because he wants some time with me where (laughs) we're having a great time, but I'm not talking. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we live probably 20 miles away from each other, but I would be willing to do that if I were a three, a seven, or an eight. I would walk the 10 miles to come and do a high five with you, but we can't do that because... It, you know I would do it in a second. Yeah. Well, if, if I had the time. <laughs> if you had the time, right. You're gonna, I could be talked into it very oh, easily. Good, good. So you, you guys, you're going to play a song for us. Can you tell us what it is? Well, uh, being that we are a nine and a six, uh, if we were both threes, we would be arguing which one of us would get to play the song. Or nine and six, so like, I'm hoping Jill's gonna play a song. I'm She's looking, looking at, at him me and like, I'm like, you're gonna play a song. <laughs> so before you start singing, because then people here get all you know business like, and and sometimes everybody doesn't get to talk at the end of the show. So I just want to say, uh, you guys are a great addition to mine and Joe's life, and I love you, and I love being with you today. I love you. Love you Thank too. you, Suzanne. Thank you, Ian. So, Suze, you and I get what so few people get which is a private house concert or performance from Andy and Jill. We just, I mean, we're just going to be able to get the whole kit and caboodle. I mean, this is a great moment of, of, of you know, selfishness for me personally. I'm just like, I can't wait. Um, what, are you, what song are you guys going to play? Can you, can you tell us in, a little bit about it? I think we're going to play a song called Grand Canyon um, that's about... Um, I wrote it for friends who uh, went through a really tough season. I'd say basically it's a season where, for anybody in a season where it seems like there's no hope in sight, I think it's basically just saying uh, that's okay. 
And uh, I'm just trying to remind myself that my sight is pretty poor, pretty limited. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's okay. There's no hope in sight. Yeah. Can I just say uh, thank you and goodbye for now because we're going to do a little, you know, starting next week, our our 10-mile walk to— Can't wait. You know, you know, high five and Susan talk. Susan and I will go to coffee. There yeah. you go. Yeah. We love you both and uh, and your kids and uh, your artistry and uh, the gifts that you that you so um, generously share with the world. Love so, you guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having us. There are endless tears And suffering we can't explain There are dark gray clouds That never seem to drift away There's despair in the morning That will tie us to the bed But the story isn't over There's a white flag raised Saying we can't bear anymore There are silent nights Cause nothing's like it was And our dreams retell the sadness So we cannot forget But the story isn't over yet I took a picture of the Grand Canyon So I could remember that day There are cards and letters All letting their love be Sympathetic smiles From those at a loss for words In our wake there are whispers That tell of where we've been But the story isn't over yet I took a picture of the grand So I could remember that day Oh, but the beauty of the Grand Canyon Stretches way beyond the frame Too much weighing on my mind And there's a bird out there Still singing in the dead of night 
Like he knows there's a season when the sun's gonna set, but the story isn't over yet. The story isn't You've been listening to The Road Back to You, looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram, produced by Jim Chapey, and our engineer is Brad Bass. Our theme music is provided by the band Waterdeep from their album Moment, written by Lori Chaffer. Please visit our website, theroadbacktoyou.com, for news, more podcasts, and a list of our public appearances around the country. And you can order our book, The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery, at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Hey, Suze, we got some dates coming up. We do. We're going to be here in your hometown in Nashville, March 31st and April 1st at Otter Creek Church. And we're going to be in my home state in May 12th and 13th at Westover Church. And we got some single dates coming up, too. I'm uh, going to be at Trinity Grace Church in Tribeca, New York on April 21st to 22nd. And you're going to be at that gigantic and wonderful First United Methodist Church of Dallas that weekend as well. True. And all the information about all of those events is on our website, theroadbacktoyou.com. Hope we see you there. 